It's Friday, February 23rd, and if anyone knew what was happening, they weren't able to call it in anyway. We start here. In the span of hours, huge numbers of Americans lose cell service. Literally just one minor software glitch away from coming down. What took AT&T's network offline and what it taught authorities about future outages? If Nikki Haley can't win her home state, where can she win? You know, in South Carolina, we grow our women strong. Our team is with her one day out from the South Carolina primary, and Democrats said Trump was overstepping, so what do you call this? Executive action would look similar to an effort from years ago by then-President Trump. President Biden considers moves on the border that have already been described as illegal. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. So yesterday, I'm on my way to the ABC News Live studios in Manhattan. I'm on the subway and my phone loses service, which isn't strange between stations, that happens all the time. But then as I come above ground, I still can't get any bars. It's not until I'm sitting down in front of a bank of TVs at a TV network that I see the news, there's been a massive cell phone outage in big chunks of the country. Can you hear me now? Well, as of about 4 a.m., the answer was no. AT&T experienced a nationwide outage overnight. Yeah, a lot of people feeling very dis connected this morning. And you quickly realize how dependent you are on your phone. I tried to pull up a news story about this, nothing. I tried to email the control room, duh, that's not working. For the next several hours, we heard stories of repairmen not being able to check in on appointments, parents not able to double check on their kids heading to school, and crucially, concerns about 911 calls. So what happened here? Let's get this sorted out with ABC's chief investigative reporter, Josh Margolin. Josh, first of all, just how big was this? Well, Brad, first of all, we don't actually know exactly how big it was because there were secondary impacts. AT&T is not a standalone network. It obviously is interconnected in some places with T-Mobile and Verizon. And we heard about sporadic outages or at least problems on the network with those two companies. It's drop calls every almost every call that I've been on. I try to call back and I can't even get through again. In some cases, people saw SOS on their phones when they woke up yesterday morning. And it said SOS only. So I'm like, oh, that's weird. So I went in and tried to go online, nothing. The SOS allows some phones to use Wi-Fi or other carriers that are not their own. So you could dial a 911 or some sort of emergency number or the, the, the SOS system. I noticed that it said Verizon and SOS. Um... So I was pretty confused at that, you know, given that I don't have Verizon. According to one of the most reliable sources that we have in this space, at its peak during morning rush on the East Coast, we're talking about upwards of 70,000 customers were out. That's reported. So certainly the order of magnitude is far greater. And when they say a customer, that could just be you or me. That could also be some business that might, be one customer, but the whole business might have gone down. Remember, things are constantly talking to each other and working on the cell phone system. And so, I mean, what caused this at the end of the day, Josh? Do we know? We spent all day long not knowing what it was. And in fact, AT&T and law enforcement and government authorities were very, very slow to say anything. They were even slow to acknowledge that the problem was going on in the morning. Then finally, after hours last night, AT&T confirms, puts out a statement that 
This was not the result of some sort of malicious or nefarious action, not a cyber attack. It was a software problem that somebody did something with the software, with the updating, moving back and forth. Very reasonable considering we've seen things like this in the past, but they say it was purely a software glitch. It was resolved and they are working to make sure that everything is fixed and doesn't happen again. And yet, Josh, like when you saw kind of the the pan, and you were reporting throughout the day on how seriously U.S. law enforcement was taking this. Did, did this serve, even if it doesn't go beyond this, serve as almost a wake up call to people who think about the vulnerability of our cellular networks? Look, there's no doubt this should be a wake up call, but we keep having these wake up calls. The first nationwide ground stop of flights since 9-11. You seen delay, then you seen the second delay, and you look about a year ago, we had a software problem at the FAA that took down one of their systems that notifies pilots about flight restrictions and and things to avoid when they're flying over certain places. We saw the Colonial Pipeline issue a couple of years ago. Drivers in several states are feeling that pain at the pump. The prices just keep ticking up. Some sort of a, a ransomware attack took down one of the main routes for gasoline to be transported through the southeastern part of the country. This shows immediately and starkly that the American infrastructure is literally just one minor software glitch away from coming down. We have a, a, a nation and, in fact, a, a large part of the world that is cell phone dependent. People do not even have landlines at home. We have the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians who have made it clear that they would like to attack American civilian infrastructure. They have. And we have third party criminal attackers, hackers that are out there. There, there is no end to how important cell system and these cell networks are to the American economy, to American safety, American security. And that's why the government and that's why law enforcement was feverishly yesterday trying to figure out what happened. All right. Uh, Josh Margolin, our chief investigative reporter. Thank you so much. Hey, Brad. Thanks. Next up on Start Here, her pitch is I'm the average American's choice. So she wasn't looking for conversations about abortion right before the primary. We go on the road with Nikki Haley after the break. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here.
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. At the beginning of the Republican primary process, we all knew South Carolina was going to have a big role to play. We didn't quite know what it would be like this, though. And just a little note to Nikki. She's not going to win. Former President Donald Trump has cruised to victory in each of his first three contests, but Nikki Haley has stuck around to face Trump in her home state. And ABC's Rachel Scott has been crisscrossing the Palmetto State with Nikki Haley. Rachel, where are you right now, by the way? (laughs) Yeah, look, Brad, we have made it to Georgetown, South Carolina. Nikki Haley has been on an all-out blitz throughout this state. And look, she knows she is behind here by more than 30 points, but this is her own backyard. You know, in South Carolina, we grow our women strong. South Carolinians really know her well. She was a very popular governor in this state. And I was here over a year ago when she initially launched her bid for president. She didn't mention Donald Trump's name once. Now you can't go to a Nikki Haley event without her repeatedly calling out the former president on everything from his legal troubles to his comments. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. She says that he's putting our troops at risk by encouraging Russia to essentially uh, go after our NATO allies if they don't spend enough money on defense. In that second when he did that, he made all of our allies more vulnerable. He emboldened Putin, and Putin's now putting troops along those Baltic states. And she says to voters that they have a very clear choice ahead of them, that Donald Trump is a distraction for the Republican Party, that he represents chaos, and that if the party wants to move past that, they need to get behind Nikki Haley. The only problem is, Brad, again, she has not won a single state. As of now, it's all but certain that she's going to trail him here in South Carolina, too. Yeah, we're talking about, like, 20 and 30 point deficits in the polls, right, Rachel? What What is Nikki Haley actually expecting here? Is she trying to win or not get embarrassed or something else? What's the strategy? She is trying to play the long game here. A Trump nomination is a Biden win and a Kamala Harris presidency. If you talk to Nikki Haley's team, they'll point out that in these general election matchups and these races with Nikki Haley and President Biden, that she actually edges out Biden. But again, the only issue is, is that in order to get there, she has to get through Donald Trump first and she cannot name a single state that she would actually win. So the big question here is, is she just waiting to see whether or not something happens with Donald Trump? We know that all of this is playing out still in the courts. He's not talking about all of the influx happening on the border. He's not talking about the lawlessness in our cities. He's not talking about wars around the world. All he's doing 
is talking about himself. Is she waiting for the Republican Party to completely abandon the former president? As of now, Brad, it does not look like that is going to happen. And in fact, the RNC and the Trump campaign have taken major steps now toward moving closer to the former president. The Trump campaign thinks they'll have enough delegates to clinch this nomination by March 12th. Wow. Okay. And so then when I think about the Republican Party's chances in November, whether it's with Trump, which is more likely or much less likely with Nikki Haley, but either way, you got to start with, I'm thinking women voters, suburban voters, these voters that clearly flipped the tide for Joe Biden. That was Trump's big shortcoming four years ago. And now we're seeing pretty fundamental questions in red states about how anti-abortion rights movements have affected pretty popular like fertility treatments. How has that impacted the conversation on the trail in the last 48 hours? Look, the Republican Party knows that this is a major issue for them. And they're looking at some of these conservative states after Roe versus Wade was overturned, Kansas, for example, that voted overwhelmingly to protect access to abortion. Well, then you have this ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court. What does this mean for us as a country? Are people not going to be able to get the care, medical care they need if they're suffering from infertility and you know, need to build their family. It has essentially paused fertility treatments at several clinics in that state. Nikki Haley was asked about this, and she says that embryos are considered babies. If you look in the definition, an embryo is considered an unborn baby. So she signaled that she backs that ruling that came down. But after it got a lot of attention, she's tried to sort of walk that back a little bit. This case was based on and should be based on the rights of those parents for their embryos. Now she says that she doesn't believe that clinics should stop fertility treatments for these families that, you know, desperately want to either expand their families or start their families. Mm. And so she's really trying at this point to have it both ways, it appears. Nikki Haley does not want to turn off not only suburban women, but also independent voters who see this as a critical issue. But Brad, look, this is far beyond Nikki Haley. This is something that every single Republican is going to be confronting as they're running for re-election or if they're on the ballot this November, because this is going to be top of mind and Democrats especially are going to be hammering Republicans on this issue in November. Yeah, it's easy to say every embryo represents a life. And yet when, when you look at IVF treatment, how, how many embryos are often harnessed and how few of them are viable in proportion, that's when the hard questions come. That's when the rubber meets the road, when you have these theoretical conversations about very practical family planning matters. All right, Rachel Scott, there on the side of the road in South Carolina. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. And if we're talking about a party being in an uncomfortable spot with moderate voters, well, let's talk about Democrats and immigration. You remember when Republicans were pushing for a border security deal, Democrats said, fine, we'll play ball. And then former President Trump told Republicans to vote no on this bill that would have delivered them the wins on so much of the stuff that they've been pushing for for years. Well, now President Biden appears to be pressing for some of these measures himself, and he's willing to go to the Trump playbook to do it. I'm joined now by ABC White House correspondent Karen Trivers. Karen, wait, what? what is Biden looking to do here? Executive action, Brad. <laughs> That's what we're told the president is considering when it comes to perhaps tough new asylum restrictions. Now, important to note here, we're told the president is looking at a wide range of options. There are many things that could be under consideration. Nothing final has been made in terms of any decision of of what the president would do. But 
one thing we're told that he is considering is possibly barring migrants from seeking asylum if they cross illegally between ports of entry, official U.S. ports of entry. So that would make it more restrictive for people claiming asylum. And this is something that uh, has been talked about before. It's something that would certainly be controversial if done. But the president is very eager to show Americans he is taking this issue seriously. Brad, polls show that Americans are really concerned about what is happening at the U.S. southern border. And as you mentioned, it's not happening on Capitol Hill right now. That bipartisan deal in the Senate was rejected by House Republicans, and there is very little chance that that gets taken up in any meaningful way in the near future or as we get closer to Election Day. So this is the White House looking at those polls, looking at what Americans say they are worried about, and trying to show that they're doing something. But but I feel like I'm taking crazy pills, Karen, because didn't <laughs> President Trump try to do this when he was in office? He was like, well, Congress is going to do what I want, so I'm going to do executive action. Democrats said this is all illegal. A lot of the courts agreed. And now what Biden is saying, actually, yes, we should be doing executive action. I'm going to push through some of these same things. Yeah. Welcome to Washington, right? Where, you know, you say <laughs> one thing when it's the other team doing it, but then when it's your back up against the wall, suddenly you start to reconsider things. Now, you know, executive action would look similar to an effort from years ago by then President Trump to block migration. Democrats were fiercely opposed to it at the time. And those things did end up getting blocked by courts. That's another important thing here, too. Executive action on migration, on border policy will almost certainly get challenged in court. So mm. this might not end up even going anywhere. The second it gets announced, there could be a legal challenge. That's also something interesting politically for the president, because you can say, look, we tried. This is what we wanted to do. But then the courts blocked it. Uh, uh, so you're trying to thread it. Like he might he could even be thinking we look like we're trying to do this, even though we know we can't. But at least we look like it. we look like we're trying to do something. So you're trying to maybe appeal to voters in the middle who are very concerned about this right now. But you're also risking here uh, upsetting people in your own party. You know, progressives are not going to like action mm. like this that would seem closer to something from the Trump era. I think another important thing to note here, Brad, is that for months now, we have been hearing from the president and senior officials that there was nothing they could do. Bipartisan bill would be good for America and help fix our broken immigration system and allow speedy access for those who deserve to be here. And Congress needs to get it done. They could not take executive action. There was no option available to the president. I mean, this question has come up in the White House briefing. It's been asked of the president uh, repeatedly. And they say, no, Congress has to act. It has to be through legislation. It has to go through the legislative branch. So now here we are in late February and suddenly there's executive action that might be an option. Well, the thinking behind this is that, you know, there just isn't the possibility that Congress is going to do anything. So given that, you know, they've kind of run out of options up there, the White House, as they say, looking into the toolbox to see if there's anything that they could possibly do to try and remedy the situation. And yet you could imagine, like you said, a lot of Democrats being like, I'm sorry, I thought we meant what we said when we said this was a bad idea, that it was illegal, that these policies were disastrous. And now Biden sort of going ahead in an election year gambit here. All right. Karen Travers in Washington. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad.
Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, the few, the proud, the unused pockets. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing, everything about military rules goes back to function, right? You tuck your trousers into your boots so sand doesn't get inside them. You keep your hair short because back in the day, soldiers in close quarters were liable to spread head lice. But in the Navy, every pair of trousers comes with two side pockets, which you're not supposed to use. You're not allowed to stand with your hands in your pockets. At least that was the rule until recently. So earlier this month, the Navy announced that it will now allow its sailors to put their hands in their pockets. And so normal people are going, wait, they weren't allowed to put their hands in their pockets before? That's ABC's Matt Seiler, who doesn't just cover the Pentagon for us, he's also a veteran of the Marine Corps. What was the dumbest rule you encountered while you were in the Marines? I think the dumbest was having to have a fresh haircut once a week because your hair doesn't have time to grow that much in that period of time. He says in both the Navy and the Marines, the no hands in pockets rule can be flummoxing to recruits. The rationale is that you make your hands available for quick reactions, whether to defend yourself or to salute a passing officer. But at the end of the day, it also just looks cleaner. The reason for this has always been a matter of professionalism, um, portraying a military sort of bearing. Now, if you know anything about the Navy and Marines, you know there's a bit of a rivalry with the Marines seeing themselves as more specialized, more hardcore. And while the Navy is now ditching this rule, the Marines aren't. The Marine Corps is holding the line as of now. Uh, Marines are not allowed to put their hands in their pockets unless they're retrieving an item from said pocket. You hear how proud he is? The strange thing, though, is the more you talk to Marines, the more you realize not one among them will say they've never put their hands in their pockets. I uh, ran into a Marine colonel in the hallway here and I asked him what his thoughts are. And, you know, one of the things he said was, okay, did the Marines at the Chosin Reservoir in Korea in the freezing cold Did they put their hands in their pockets? Yeah, probably. So why keep the rule if everyone agrees it's silly? It allows Marines to feel cool and subversive when they flout this rule, when they do occasionally put their hand in their pocket. Whereas now the sailors, they're just gonna be rule followers when they put their hand in their pocket and that's frankly boring. On a more serious note, he says each of these old-school military branches are doing some modern soul-searching. They're considering their brand identities. The Marine Corps gets to be a little bit choosier, too. Like, we have a recruiting crisis, right? The Navy is struggling in recruiting. Most of the services are. The Marine Corps actually is doing pretty well throughout this uh, wider crisis. And the Marine Corps has always done good with 
advertising that's very in your face. They have a famous poster that says, we don't promise you a rose garden, with a picture of a stern drill instructor looking a recruit in the face. The Navy, on the other hand, tells recruits, hey, you're going to go see the world. You're going to get a college degree. We're there for you. It makes sense they would want to reach a broader audience. And sure enough, their announcement said sailor feedback was a big part of this rule change. Matt says his Marine colleagues will continue to see themselves as superior until their own superiors walk away. When you're out there in the field, I have a cold hand and I have a warm pocket. Boy, I feel like I'll be more effective if I can warm this hand up, keep my trigger finger toasty. I'm going to need that thing. By the way, overnight, Odysseus, little Odie, the first commercial moon lander in history, successfully touched down near the south pole of the moon. It's transmitting data as we speak. Hopefully it sends back a selfie or something ASAP. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Vika Aronson, Cameron Chertavian, Anthony Ali, Mauro Milwaukee, and Madeline Wood. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor, Laura Mayers, our executive producer. Thanks to Kia Brown, John Newman, Tara Gimble, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Chris Berry and Ann Flaherty. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. What is happening here? It's just beautiful chaos. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. To be honest, I was thinking about asking him for a foot massage, and then I I just froze. This is the best gig on TV. And you know anything can happen. That is what we do here. I'm not going to lie. The chair's a little small for my behind. (laughs) (laughs) The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.